0: Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from Newcross Healthcare that seeks to get to the very heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector by speaking to leaders that are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahel Mirza. The NHS is really out of the news waiting lists, growing demand, cost of living crisis, and of course, strike action. It's therefore vital to understand and hear from leaders who've been at the heart of transforming the experience and engagement of the workforce. I'm therefore delighted to welcome Laura Scaife Knight, the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Kingsland NHS Foundation Trust. Laura, I'm delighted to welcome you and thank you for giving us your time and uh, welcome to the series.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for the invite.
0: It's always a pleasure. I want to start off by attacking the headlines the commentators are calling this Period, the uh, most challenging crisis that the workforce in the NHS has ever faced. We've got vacancy levels running at 133,000. The v- recent NHS uh, uh, data showing over 42,000 people voluntarily resigning at a time when there are shortages. You've had huge experience in the sector. What does it look like on the ground? Is the crisis as challenging and as profound as the commentators are saying?
1: It is, and and sadly, I agree. I think, as you've described very clearly, the facts speak for themselves. And I think what we're seeing now effectively is the perfect storm. As you've said, over 100,000 vacancies in the NHS. The pressures are unrelenting, I think it's fair to say. And like nothing I've seen in my career over the last 20 years, both in terms of pressures on the front door and urgent and emergency care. And of course, the very significant challenge we have across the NHS of addressing um, the elective backlog that has built through COVID, coupled with the fact that, quite honestly, our staff are tired. We're seeing more burnout. Um, We know as a result of that, morale has taken a big hit. And staff sickness itself has had an impact. And of course, we know um, when we see increases in sickness, we have to rely therefore more on agency staff. And and that comes with an added financial challenge and burden um, in addition to the growing demand on our services. So um, adding all of those things together, it's a huge challenge. I think we have to understand the true impact of COVID um, coming to the fore and 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 quite honestly people are choosing we know to leave the nhs and and i think covid has made many of us think differently about our priorities in life and 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 what we want in terms of work life balance and more flexibility but i think when you boil this all down we need to stop applying short term fixes to what is clearly um, a longer term problem.
0: No absolutely and I want to delve into that a little bit because of the transformation that's taken place over the three years or so that you've since you've joined the trust but before that I want to put it into context the the hospital that you serve has a very special unique place in, in a rural community. We've also had of course legislation uh, enacting the integrated care systems so a very different platform and the idea of collaboration partnership relationships has never been more important can you put that into context of just how important the hospital is in terms of its local economy as an anchor institution
1: oh of course hugely important and um, we all know whether it's in a rural areas such as um, west norfolk where i work or in cities across the country actually hospitals effectively are at the heart of our local communities. And, and that's certainly the case in Kingsland We've seen that through the fantastic response and support from our local communities during COVID. We've seen that in, in bucket loads when it comes to the new hospital campaign and the mobilisation of support, quite literally. It's united our local community. And we talk a lot about anchor institutions. And I think we increasingly need to look beyond the walls of our own hospital and understand how we as healthcare providers can contribute more broadly to seeing our society flourish and truly understanding what that means in terms of working in partnership with other organisations including increasingly um, local authorities and the voluntary sector to truly make a positive impact on our communities and there are so many ways we can do that.
0: And I want to now sort of expand upon that because when you joined the trust it's it's fair to say um, it was in a very challenging position Um, Three years or so later, uh, the CQC report demonstrates an an open culture, speaking very positively on a number of things. Now, that's not been a journey that's been overnight. It requires huge transformation. We will talk about the corporate strategy, the clinical strategy in due course, the people plan that you've uh, developed. But I wanted to start with, I think, for me, what was very important is that you produced a framework of values to drive the decisions around fairness etc can you elaborate upon how important those values are what they are and how they inform this transformation
1: of course and you're absolutely right Um, if we turn the clock back three or four years ago this hospital was was quite literally the worst performing hospital in the country it was considered a a basket case and it was top of the agenda in terms of the national top of the office in terms of um, being on the hit list if you like and um that's not a good place to be when you look at, you know, financial indicators, staff survey was the worst in the country, patient experience and safety concerns, coupled with the fact that we we were the the most digitally immature hospital in the country. So we were bottom of the table on every indicator. The good news um, was the the only way is up. So that presents real opportunities. But actually at the heart of our challenge, was was working with an organisation in a workforce that that was battered and bruised, and in some cases had actually given up. Wow. Um, where did we start? <laughs> um, we had a very clear formula, um, and I think we've we've seen that being really central to our success. Of now exiting special measures over the last twelve months or so, and and you're right. At the heart of that was being absolutely clear on our expectations and focus. On our values and quite simply, they are kindness, wellness and fairness and, and living our values mm. and bringing our values to life in everything we do. And, um, and calling out poor behaviour, quite honestly.
0: No, and I think that takes courage. And I think why this is important, this journey to share, is that uh, many trusts are at different places today in terms of the workforce. We are facing these challenges. And therefore, if we can learn from how a, a hospital, in your words, a basket case to one that's actually got commendation from a CQC report, I, I think there's a lot of uh, value in that. And talking around the open culture, around those values, one of the things that struck me was the importance that you gave to uh, allow people to speak out so the freedom to speak up guardians a blended model could you share a little bit about that because that helped with engagement in terms of people feeling truly part of the of one team
1: it helped hugely and this was central to creating a culture where staff felt safe and and we've certainly um, moved from an organization when i started um, just over three years ago to to one where the vast majority of speak up concerns went direct to the cqc because staff feared speaking up internally There was real fear of detriment. And uh, and actually, staff simply bypassed line managers and and went straight outside of the organisation. So we've changed that. We've turned that around. Um, Really pleased to say we've um, chosen as a board, actually, to invest significantly in this agenda um, from 30 hours per month of support to 120 hours of support. We have a blended model. We have a full-time Freedom to Speak Up Guardian um, we have then a supporting staff guardian and then some independent resource. So we have a blended model that works incredibly well so that staff have options, both staff guardians and that independent resource. But really importantly as well, underlaying all of that, we have a superb community of some 20 um, plus Freedom to Speak Up champions, spanning staff groups across the organisation, a volunteer and a governor, and, and this model is really serving us well. And, and, and I'm pleased to say this year, I know we will exceed 200 cases of Speak Up internally. We've had no cases go straight to the, the Care Quality Commission, so a total U-turn from, from three or four years ago. Cases are closed very quickly um, so that staff have confidence. If they speak up, they know the cases will be taken seriously. They will be dealt with and closed and we know from the feedback we get from staff that we are have no evidence of staff considering they experience detriment um as a result of speaking up so there are some really positive signs there and we 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 had that endorsed fire our um, cqc inspection if we turn back the clock 12 months ago
0: now that's a remarkable turnaround and as you say if we create a safe environment for people to share their concerns and challenges that will allow over time of course engaged staff and clinical outcomes there's a there's a relationship which is well established uh, in the literature i wanted to move on to the the people plan uh, you, that you've created um with the goal of creating a workforce fit for the future and n- number one action one uh, is obviously the health and well-being again a subject i know which is very close to your heart you talked about the fact that the staff were tired demoralized plenty of literature to to show that Uh, and that we could be here for a long time but i just want to pick out a few things that you think were particularly interesting to get people's well-being and support throughout their journey i know you've advocated um, uh, menopause um, uh, awareness together with of course what seemingly seemed like a simple thing but extending free car parking which makes a huge difference in terms of people at the cost of living crisis
1: of course and um a few things here firstly wellness is one of our three values and actually we flip this on its head so this is not about um, supporting staff when they get sick and getting staff into work it's actually about keeping staff well and keeping staff in work to prevent them from getting sick in the first place so I think that's a different way of thinking about wellness and, and we often talk about sickness we talk about wellness rather than sickness because I think I think that's hugely important and We know if staff are to be at their best for patients, we have to absolutely make sure we invest in our staff. And we've done that by uh, investing very significantly in our health and well-being programme, which is part of a much bigger staff engagement programme. And some examples of the areas we've invested in include We have a a, a class-leading clinical psychology team who work both with individually with our staff where they have concerns and need support, but with teams, and that was hugely important during COVID, including on our COVID wards. We have a fantastic community internally um, of mental health first aiders who support our staff. We have a Nationally recognized menopause program. So, we um, achieved menopause friendly accreditation uh, with the first NHS trust in the country to do that. We have a fantastic package of support around menopause. All of our policies are updated to reflect that. And a really big focus on mindfulness and staff, encouraging staff to take time out, to have their breaks, to have health MOTs. And, and recently, we agreed with our um, all of our workforce to give every member of staff a wellness day this year so an extra day off that's how important we take that across the organization and you're absolutely right we took the decision in response to staff feedback last year to invest in three or four what I call big ticket areas that we we know are really important to staff and, and in turn their well-being and wellness and that includes free car parking Um, It includes half-price gym membership, which has been hugely successful and and well received by our workforce. Discounted meals, recognizing the cost of living crisis and the challenges, the additional challenges that presents for staff, and introducing hot food at night, and and that package of of staff incentives and benefits not only demonstrate that we're absolutely putting wellness of staff front and center of our agenda as a board but it also demonstrates really importantly to me that we're listening to staff feedback and acting on staff feedback.
0: And that, I I guess, is incredibly pertinent right now. Um, Again, the same uh, NHS data that showed uh, record numbers leaving also highlighted of those 42,000, worryingly 7,200 left for work-life balance reasons, the highest number ever. So, I think this framework that you've developed is uh, something that all of us can learn from. I wanted to move to the NHS people plan, compassion, inclusion, uh, and uh, your your people plan, of course, talks around action three, ensuring that there's a sense of belonging for all. I know this is a subject very dear to your own heart um, and to the whole of the trust. So can we expand a, a little bit about how important that was? in terms of your fairness value, of course. And what you actually did is I think there's a number of networks that you supported and empowered to come forward and promote these values.
1: You're absolutely right. This is something that is very close to my heart. In fact, I've just in the last hour had the absolute privilege of formally opening our new multi-faith rooms that the heart of that is created an inclusive culture in the organisation. But I think There are some really practical things that we've done to not just say we are committed to creating an inclusive culture, but demonstrate we're actually doing that in reality. And and if I could give some examples, culture starts at the board. I'm really clear about that. Um, We have a reverse mentoring programme that started at the board that has now cascaded down the organisation. As you say, we have a number of staff networks um, um, who have been key to driving this agenda forward including um, what we call our REACH Network, so Race, Ethnicity and Culture Heritage Network, LGBT Network, which I have the privilege of being the exec lead on, and Disability Network, and and finally, our Armed Forces Network. They are driving forward really positive changes for patients and staff and changing the culture of the organisation for the better. We celebrate um, the cultures that make up Team QEH, in some really obvious and and visible ways throughout the year. Um, For instance, um, we celebrate um, the different nationalities we have in our hospital, um, on lift wraps in the hospital. Um, We celebrate Black History Month. We celebrate Pride, Diwali. All of those occasions are hugely important. And we, we have an equality, diversity and inclusion calendar that we use, actually. So we have absolute focus on those key events and milestones each month of the year. One of the other things that has been really critical and and seen improvements was there was the perception of um, a lack of fairness on interview panels and recruitment processes and, and therefore a suggestion that there can be unconscious bias. At times, so we took the decision to make sure there was representation um, on interview panels um, of having a, a BAME member on panels, but also making sure our interview panels are gender balanced, and and that is monitored. And quite simply, interview panels and recruitment processes don't go ahead if we can't demonstrate that, that fairness element. And, and that, that is serving us really well. And we're getting really positive feedback from our staff.
0: And I think it's important to bear in mind, it's uh, wonderful to hear the extent of the initiatives. Um, it's not just simply a moral imperative, which, of course, nobody would disagree with, uh, but also ensuring that we harness all the talent from people from all groups. Uh, it goes right, goes right to the heart of productivity.
1: It does. You're absolutely right. And also, for me, it's about celebrating difference. And We call it Team QEH or Team NHS in some cases, and actually celebrating and embracing different actually gets better results. And as you say, that can be efficiency, productivity, but actually at the heart of that is having an inclusive organisation.
0: I wanted to move on to, of course, the broader picture. There are shortages. There have been vacancies now for a long time, over 100,000 pre-pandemic. Um, international recruitment has its place, etc. But I wanted to focus on your commitment at the Trust uh, to grow your own uh, workforce. The, the your QEH people plan focuses on harnessing talent, learning and development. Can you expand a bit of on that? Because it's so important, not only in terms of meeting the vacancies uh, pressure, but also in terms of the community and allowing the community to see uh, the nhs as a place to work and wanting to work
1: absolutely we are doing some fantastic work in, the, in this space that i'm really proud of recognizing we work um, in a really, really isolated area um We have to look at models such as growing our own. We, we, in the last year or so, have opened in partnership, in an innovative partnership with the Borough Council here and with the College um, of West Anglia, a new school of nursing. That gives us a pipeline for growing our own, quite literally, in terms of training nursing associates. We know we have cohorts then coming through the system on an annual basis, in addition to the international recruitment we do. We have uh, for a small rural district general hospital, I'm really proud that we have over 150 apprenticeships in place in the organisation, both in clinical and non-clinical areas. And that's serving us really well. And importantly, going back to the, the discussion we started earlier around being an anchor institution, it's really important that we support those with disabilities, those from disadvantaged backgrounds, to give just a few examples to get into apprenticeships, to come and join us for work experience and, and give, those, give those colleagues a real opportunity to have a career in the NHS because every everyone deserves that chance. So we're doing some great work there, coupled with a real focus on retention. Talk a lot about recruitment. We talk less about retention in the NHS, but we've got to start getting really serious and we are doing that here And and as you touched on, a real focus, I think, in a different way for the first time in the NHS on talent spotting and mapping, succession planning at every level of the organisation, not just senior levels, from board to ward, and having really clear career progression pathways um, across every staff group in the organisation and really taking that seriously.
0: I think uh, the Trust has um, its corporate strategy strategy, at its centre is to be rated outstanding i think in uh, 2025 Um, and a lot of the work here obviously is the foundation for that now you won't be here uh, in 2025 i'd like to take the opportunity to congratulate you on your appointment as chief executive at uh, nhs orkney you must be uh, very excited about uh, what that has to offer
1: I'm hugely excited, um, both sad to be leaving the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, where I've had the most memorable um, three plus years. And I think um, here with Team QEH, have achieved some amazing things. Um, I know the future is bright here, but equally, I'm looking forward to my next challenge and, and my first chief executive um, post um, at NHS Orkney. Hopefully I can take some of the learning from the work I've done here. Um, and and add to that in Orkney um, and and move that organisation forward and make it a great place to work, but perhaps more importantly, deliver great patient care.
0: Absolutely, and I think uh, NHS Orkney has its own vision to uh, provide the best uh, um, remote and rural care. Uh, Are there particular challenges, I know you're not in place yet, but are there particular challenges that you foresee that you want to tackle uh, because the workforce, of course, it has its own unique uh, geography and history?
1: Absolutely. It will come as no surprise to you at all that there are real recruitment challenges um, in Orkney. Um, There are real culture challenges. Um, Again, that's something I can relate to um, from my time in West Norfolk. Um, And real opportunities around integration and closer working um, with local authority partners, um, and particular challenges in terms of closing the gap and reducing health inequalities.
0: Well, I'm going to wish you tremendous good fortune with that. I may uh, take this last opportunity uh, to recognise a quite distinctive aspect of your career, um, your professional leadership uh, experiences in communications and uh, award-winning, if I may say so. Some of us remember the programme hospital, which you took into to Nottingham. Um, it's quite unusual to have someone with that background become a chief executive within the NHS. And I wanted to ask if uh, you met someone who was a communications leader, is one and has aspirations to become a chief exec, what perhaps two or three key things of advice you would give them to do that? Because you've, you've, you know, mapped this path for them.
1: No, absolutely. And I think the first thing I say to the many people who ask me this, this question is if I can do it, anyone can. I've had the, the privilege of working with some of the best leaders in the NHS over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, And I've learned from others. I've learned as I've gone. I may have been in the right place at the right time as well and had a little bit of luck as I've gone. But I've worked hard. Um, What I've learned is really great people skills um, compassionate and visible leadership. And really great comms is at the heart of a really great chief executive. So um, I think in the future we will see more communications directors go on to be chief execs is my forecast for the next decade or so. And and fundamentally, it's also about not just the people side and culture side and getting that. It's about being a strategic thinker. And I think lots of communications professionals do that, but perhaps um, don't realise they do that because of the portfolio of communications. But if I can do it, anyone can. Um, And as I say, I hope more people will will follow in my path in the years to come.
0: Well, on that inspirational note, uh, we'll leave it. Thank you very much, Laura Scaife Knight.
1: Thank you, Sahail. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow, or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want to find out more about how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you and goodbye.